Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Silvana Tanreiro. I'm a professor of economics and member of the Center for Macroeconomics here at the LSE. I am absolutely delighted to uh, uh, introduce David Sackler's let, um, lecture today, which is jointly hosted by the Department of Economics and the Center for Macroeconomics. As you surely know, David is a senior research leader in sociology at Oxford University. He has done extensive work on global health, spanning over and in fact bridging sociology and economics. Today he will be talking about his latest book, The Body Economic, Why Austerity Kills. And uh, this is obviously a very relevant topic in the current policy debate, and uh, the book couldn't be more timely. Before I leave the floor to, um, to David, let me just uh, lay out the logistics for today. He will be talking for about 45 minutes, and then he will take questions from the audience. Um, after that, he will be happy to sign copies of his book, which uh, you can buy just outside the theater. And uh, three more practical reminders. Please put your mobile phones on silent. Um, the talk will be recorded, and we hope that the podcast of the event will be um, put, uh, uploaded on, on, online. Um, and finally, for those on Twitter, the hashtag is LSCStackler. So please, me, please uh, join me now in uh, welcoming David with a warm applause. Well, Silvana, thank you for that very kind introduction. It's a great pleasure to join you here at the LSE to cover what's quite possibly the most important topic for the future of the UK, for the future of the rest of Europe, is how is austerity and deep budget cuts affecting our most valuable asset, our health and that of our families. It's now five years since the worst recession since the Great Depression began. People have lost homes. They've lost jobs. Many remain mired in unpayable debt. Here in the UK, more than one in five youth are looking for work and unable to find it. And meanwhile, our politicians have been debating endlessly how to deal with debts, how to deal with deficits created by the recession and the bailouts of the financial sector, with little regard for the human costs of their economic choices. And all too often, the stories of those suffering, slipping through the cracks, go unnoticed, go unheard. By now you may be wondering who's this boy on the screen. Let me draw your attention, uh, let me introduce you to Karen McArdle. At the ripe age of 13, he's already bitter. He blames the government for killing his dad. Maybe hard to see at the back. He's holding a picture of Brian, his father, who worked for 20 years as a security guard in Lanarkshire, near Glasgow. Until two Christmases ago, he suffered a massive stroke that left him blind in one eye, paralyzed, and unable to speak. So he's forced to turn to the government to help make ends meet for his family. That government and the hands of the conservative-led coalition party would prove no friend to Brian and the McArdles. For in an effort 
to tackle what was called an epidemic of welfare scroungers, of people cheating the welfare system. The conservative coalition contracted with Atos, the French system integration firm, to conduct fitness for work screenings. So Brian, like many others in the UK, were called in for a fitness for work exam. Brian was a little concerned because he had heard these tests. About a quarter of them were taking place in buildings that were not accessible to people in wheelchairs. But he went to the test and he did his best. Two weeks later, a brown envelope came through the post. Atos, the government had deemed him fit for work. His benefits would be cut with immediate effect. The very next day, Brian collapsed and died. This time, from a massive heart attack. And that's why Karen, age 13, blames the government for killing his father. Now, as a public health researcher, working together with many great colleagues, one who's here, Professor Martin McKee, real pleasure to have you join us, it's very difficult for us to understand the government's logic in this conversation. What I have here, again, may be difficult to see at the back, is a spreadsheet from the Department for Work and Pensions estimating the sum of fraud from people with disabilities in the UK. And for, for the year, the McArdle's support was cut. That sum was about £2 million. Yet the contract with Atos annually was costing taxpayers 400 million pounds, costing taxpayers more. And this is but one of many examples we've seen in pursuit of reducing deficits, in a drive for austerity, that notwithstanding their great harm, have had the opposite of their intended effects. Increasing deficits, costing us more. Austerity has been a massive experiment on the people of Europe. It was designed to cure deficits, to help speed up recovery from recessions. And now, three years after these austerity experiments have begun in Europe, the results are starting to become clear. What I have here is a comparison of the United States and the United Kingdom's recessions. Two relatively matched countries both were at the center of the housing bubble, had heavily leveraged banks exposed to toxic debts, and both suffered a major crash following the collapse of Lehman Brothers in the middle of 2008. Both had leaders who bailed out their banking sectors, but a difference in their recoveries began to emerge towards 2010. Whereas President Barack Obama introduced about $700 billion more in stimulus funding to help pave the way for recovery, with the transition to the coalition government, the UK began charting a course of austerity, aiming for $85 billion eventually in budget cuts. And that marked a turning point when the UK's recovery began to flatline. And so here you can see what's been since an L-shaped recovery 
And at the end, you can start to see the green shoots that we're hearing a lot about. But from where the, the countries began here at zero, the U.S. has since recovered. The U.K. is still not back to what it was five years ago when the recession began, marking the slowest recovery from recession in the history of recessions. But I'm not here to talk just about the economics, important as it is, but about public health. And what we've learned is that investments in social protection from early childhood development straight through to old age pensions are a powerful determinant of our health. And this association of greater per capita spending on social welfare and higher life expectancy, I'll argue, is not just a correlation, but a powerful cause and effect relationship seen across societies and over time. So to test out this social protection hypothesis, we've been looking at cases around the EU. And at one extreme, there's Greece, which is in the middle of a public health disaster. Of course, Greece made many economic mistakes, not least spending too much in the good times and uh, failing to spend in the bad times. But one policy that caused great harm was signing up to the Troika. This is the European Commission, European Central Bank, and European and International Monetary Fund's austerity measures. To help achieve budget deficit reduction targets, Greece's health spending was capped at 6% of GDP. Now, where that figure came from is not entirely clear, because Germany spends about 10%, the United States in total, close to 20% of GDP. And at a time when Greece's economy was sinking, people could no longer afford the private sector turning to the public sector we would have expected spending to rise. But at the time, this translated into a very deep cut. An incredulous journalist asked the health minister, in one year alone, you're aiming to cut the health budget by over 40%. Can this really be? And the minister responded, look, these aren't cuts with a surgical scalpel, but a butcher's knife. Now, usually in public health, there's a delay between an exposure, saying people turning to smoking and lung cancer, which would manifest 10 years down the road. But the impacts of some of these deep cuts to Greece's health system are already starting to become clear. As HIV prevention programs were cut in half, we've seen a large outbreak of HIV infections. Not when the recession began, in 2008, 2009, but when the cuts began to take effect since 2010. Uh, new cases of HIV have more than doubled concentrated in injection drug users. In other examples, as mosquito sp spraying programs were cut in the southern part of the country, there was a return of malaria for the first time in large numbers since the early 1970s when the disease was considered eradicated. There was a return of West Nile virus, dengue fever. I, I could go on. Now threatening the tourist industry. And in a paper that we published in The Lancet, these were but a few of the health effects we'd seen in Greece. 
from a 60% reported jump in suicides to 40% increase in infant mortality, significant jump in stillbirths, uh, and deep increases in people reporting that they were unable to access medically necessary care. As the government made deep cuts to pharmaceutical budgets, companies like Novo Nordisk exited the country in arrears, taking with them medicines from the shelves, insulin that people had relied on, causing, as journalists have depicted quite well, panic in some of the pharmacies, as it's estimated that some pharmacies were stocked out more than 200 essential medicines. This is happening in Europe. Uh, But let me draw your attention. If Greece is in the middle of a public health tragedy, let me draw your attention to another economic crisis at a different extreme. And if you were in Iceland in October 2008, your TV program would have been interrupted by this man, Prime Minister Hart. With block white letters appearing on the screen, God bless Iceland. He had interrupted TV program to call an emergency announcement, warning Icelanders of a period of enormous hardship, unlike that seen since World War II. And he had a point, because Iceland's three biggest banks had failed. Its debt jumped to more than 800% of GDP, largest figure in Europe. And for a nation that had just squandered the majority of its banking assets, had few places to turn for support. And like Greece, was forced to turn to the International Monetary Fund and the Troika for a bailout. And like Greece, came with the usual conditions. Uh, The Troika was asking Iceland to make 30% cuts to its public health budget, deep cuts to its social protection measures. And I can recall being in Gastein with representatives of Iceland who took to joking, what's the difference between the IMF and a vampire? So one stop sucking your blood after you're already dead. But, But then something quite different happened in Iceland. The equivalent of 10% of people poured onto the streets outside Althingi House, Iceland's parliament, protesting the plan to finance deep budget cuts uh, to make up for the need to bail out the banks. The health minister resigned in protest, and the president of this tiny island nation took a radical step, calling for a democratic option, calling a public referendum. And so it was, in March 2010, 93% of Icelanders voted no to financing bank bailouts with deep budget cuts. A decision that was later upheld in 2011 with another referendum. And as the president explained, in a long quote here, we were wise enough not to follow the prevailing orthodoxies of the Western financial world over the past 30 years. We let the banks fail. We provided support for the poor. We didn't introduce deep austerity measures like you're seeing here in the UK and the rest of Europe. And so what happened? At a time when the price of importing medicines 
was rocketing to cope with the increase, Iceland injected more money into its health system. Unlike Greece, there was no sign of people losing access to health care. So commonly we see people who have lost jobs, and there was a stark increase in unemployment in Iceland. So commonly we see people who have lost work reporting being stressed, depressed, and at greater risk of suicide. We looked at surveys before and after the crisis and found people who were unemployed were reporting sleeping more and spending more time with their families, with no apparent rise in suicides. Sometimes we see people who have lost income turn to low-quality sources of food, trying to make ends meet. Yet in Iceland, McDonald's pulled out of the country, citing operational difficulties. Apparently, the cost of importing tomatoes uh, was uh, making cheeseburgers too expensive. And so people turned to locally sourced fish, in turn, uh, helping power uh, an economic boom. And to top it all, uh, Iceland, which was once rated as one of the world's happiest nations, was again, in 2011, according to the UN's first World Happiness Report, sitting atop the list as one of the world's happiest nations. And did it cost them? Here I have a comparison of Iceland and Greece's economic growth performance. And while Iceland has charted a rebound, unemployment falling below 5% of the workforce, in Greece the latest data we have uh, shows a steady sink into the abyss. Now, of course, Iceland and Greece are two quite different nations. Iceland isn't a member of the Eurozone, so it has the option to devalue its currency, uh, and it had more flexibility in its fiscal policy. But what the contrast proves is that even a devastating economic crisis needs not lead to a health disaster if politicians take steps to protect their people in hard times. But to further test out our thesis that recessions can hurt, but austerity kills, we've looked at major economic disasters in history. And one, we looked at the Great Depression, a crash that many commentators have looked to for insights for how to respond today. What may come as a surprise to you is to know that even though there was a period of terrible hardship and suffering, here have mortality rates in the Great Depression. Mortality rates fell during this period in the United States by about 10%. It was a time when there was a lot going on. And when we drilled closer into the data from the Center for Disease Control, we found that much of this drop was a result of road traffic deaths falling. As people were driving less to save money on fuel costs. And at the time, road safety was a foreign concept. But what made a critical difference was the politics of the Great Depression. And at the time, the president's advice, Herbert Hoover, that people should pick themselves up from their bootstraps to help power an economic recovery, felt a little out of touch. His opponent, President Roosevelt, instead campaigned pledging the American people a new deal, a massive injection of financial relief to the newly unemployed, a large-scale program to build homes and provide shelter for people who didn't have a roof over their heads, 
and to build new hospitals, schools, massive immunization programs, uh, using the crisis as an opportunity. And he won. But it created a natural experiment because some governors, especially those who leaned uh, to the right of conservative persuasion, sought to avoid the New Deal altogether, whereas some left-leaning governors thought it didn't go far enough. And this created, when we looked at the data, a polarization in health, to where we found that each additional 70 pounds per head of population at the time in New Deal spending to build schools, hospitals, roads, and shore up uh, and, and launch the U.S. social safety net led to significant drops in suicides, pneumonias, and infant deaths. It was, in effect, the biggest public health program implemented on U.S. soil in history. That leads me to a next crisis where we see the opposite. And this was the Asian financial crisis that happened in the late 1990s uh, that began with speculative attacks on the bot, Thailand's currency. And Thailand unlike what we saw in the United States, uh, rather than pursuing a course of stimulus, made deep budget cuts. In particular, it cut its HIV prevention programs in half, analogous to Greece today. What you can see here is in a few years after the recession began, when those cuts took effect, Thailand's progress in stemming HIV reversed, leading to a large outbreak uh, and deaths from HIV and its sequelae, pneumonia and tuberculosis. It's only now, closer to the current period, that Thailand's been able to recover from its epidemic. Where, in contrast, nations that were also at the eye of the storm, such as Malaysia, that didn't turn to the International Monetary Fund, that didn't go down the path of deep cuts to its health system, were able to avoid these costs. It was only in December of 2012 that the IMF formally apologized to Thailand, admitting the costs of its recommendations of austerity and liberalization were three times greater than it had previously assumed. And that's a pattern we see again today, history repeating itself. In a recent paper, bureaucratase here, entitled Growth Forecast Errors and Fiscal Multipliers, the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund acknowledged we underestimated the negative effect of austerity on employment and spending power. What they had done is look at something called fiscal multiplier, a somewhat obscure statistic that goes straight to the heart of the debate on austerity. A fiscal multiplier estimates how much government spending affects economic growth. And when that multiplier is one, it means each dollar or pound of government spending returns a dollar or pound equivalent sum in growth. When it's lower than one, it means you're losing money on government spending. And the IMF had assumed the fiscal multiplier was about 0.5. And that meant that deep cuts would be expansionary. It would save money, help power investment, help power recovery. But when they took a hard look at data from the recession, they found that multiplier was much higher, as high as 
Which is why, not too long ago, the reverse course rebuked here in the UK Chancellor Osborne advising public infrastructure stimulus. But this is this assumption and this look at the data still had a major flaw, making a big conceptual leap that uh, I'd hope our students wouldn't make, because it assumed that all government spending affected the economy equally. But this is clearly false. We wouldn't expect education, health, defense, <coughs> social protection to have the same effect on economic growth. So what we did is we used the same methodology as the International Monetary Fund, but looked at the fiscal multipliers by each component, each sector of government spending. In a paper that's still hot off the press, uh, what we found here stacked by type of government sector is that health, here depicted to the right, education and the environment has some of the largest and most positive fiscal multipliers. Whereas economic affairs, the, the coding for bank bailouts and defense spending were smaller and in some cases negative, as money tended to flow out of the economy, leading to a trade deficit, in the case of defense to foreign contractors, or in the case of bank bailouts to offshore tax havens. So clearly, this is important economic information. If you wish to pursue austerity, this data would be vital to doing it in a way that would minimize the economic harm, not to mention the human costs. There's a strong economic case for protecting and even going so far as investing in health budgets in times of crisis. But that takes acknowledging what the data tell us, and not all have been willing to do this. So what I have here is we can see the multipliers in action. I have changes in government spending, so on the right, you have more stimulus nations, or those that have allowed spending to rise in times of hardship. And on the left, those that have made deeper cuts. And, you, and on the y-axis, I have change in GDP, economic recovery. And you can see Greece here at the bottom, where stimulus nations, Finland, Sweden, and Germany are at the top. Yes, Germany preaches the virtues of austerity for others. And this acknowledgment now happening in economics, still has a way to go in public health. Soon after we published our research, warning of human harms from austerity in Greece, we received a letter in the British Medical Journal from Dr. Lyropoulos saying that there was no hard evidence to prove that the crisis has become a health hazard. And this is a view that's been expressed repeatedly by the health ministry in Greece, that budget reductions were a positive result of improving management efficiency. It was difficult for us to stand, understand the logic, because on the day these letters came to the British Medical Journal, uh, we were seeing reports from Dr. Mark Springer from the European Center for Disease Control saying, after he conducted a site visit of hospitals in Greece, that he had seen places where the financial situation was so dire that hospitals couldn't afford basic equipment, like surgical gloves, gowns, alcohol wipes, raising alarms at the prospect of drug resistance spreading on hospital wards. And a director of HIV research from the US also concluded, after inspecting Greece's HIV control programs, that the Greek government were creating an epicenter for the spread of HIV in Europe and beyond, as 
one of the only nations in Europe where HIV has jumped in this crisis. It's only when we realize that Dr. Lyaropoulos had won large grants from the Ministry of Health as chief expert panel advisor to the Troika and to the government on implementing austerity that we could follow why he was defending the indefensible. And it is, in a way, understandable. What could Greece really do? Because if we look at the latest plan from Europe for Greece, it's more of the same. With the European Central Bank just coming to Athens, where it was two weeks ago, applauding Greece for its progress on austerity, urging it to stay the course, and saying that if it did it, the remaining bailout funds wouldn't be released. Yet, while Greece's hands may be tied, here in the UK, we have more options. And in a speech just a couple weeks ago at Guildhall, not too far from here, Prime Minister Cameron used the occasion to set out the UK's platform policy. And as he stepped from a golden throne to a golden pedestal, he announced his signal policy for permanent austerity, a permanent program of deep budget cuts and retrenchment of welfare support in the UK. Now, you may recall earlier when he told us that we were all in it together on austerity. We've been looking at who's winning and who's losing from the cuts. And each of these dots is a local area of the UK. One of them is London, another is Liverpool, another is Yorkshire and Humber. And austerity is clearly regressive. It's an attack on the weakest and most vulnerable groups in our society. Here you can see the greater budget cuts have been in the more deprived areas of the UK. And if you draw a map of austerity, you see the, the losers are persons with disabilities, housing support for people who are homeless, and people who have lost jobs. What we've in effect done is had a massive transfer of wealth from the public to the private sector and bailing out banks, and the rest of us are getting deep cuts. Now, how different it was in the aftermath of World War II. People ask me, is there an alternative? I said, we seem to be forgetting our collective histories. A personal hero of mine, Nye Bevin, in 1948, at a time when Britain's economy was in shambles after World War II, its debt and total was up to 400% of GDP, a figure as large as today. He said, despite our financial and economic anxieties, we're still able to do the most civilized thing in the world, to put the welfare of the sick in front of every other consideration. And it was on that eve that the UK founded the National Health Service, founded the precursors of universal child benefit. And did it break the bank? 
The year that the National Health Service was founded, that Britain launched the welfare state, was a turning point in the history of British debt. Within a decade from 1948, it had fallen in half, continuing to fall, paving the way for peace and prosperity until about the early 80s, when debt in Britain began a slow upward march, leading us to the situation we're in today. So there is an alternative. Then, then people tell me, well, if you ask the British people what they want, they prefer deep cuts. That austerity is democratic. We took a look at the British social attitudes data, some of the main comparative sources of public attitudes uh, information we have that goes back the past 30 years. And what you can see here at the bottom in dark, this is the proportion of the population who say that they would like to see the government reduce taxes and spend less on health education, and social benefits. It's less than 10% of the population. The rest say they'd like to either keep it the same or increase it. So austerity is not democratic, as we're told. So what is an alternative? My plan for Europe, I call it New New Deal, because it builds on what we've learned from the past responses to recessions, builds on what we've learned from Iceland. It's popular, it's worked before, and it would work again. And at its heart, a new New Deal would have three guiding principles. The first of these is do no harm. This ancient law of higher healing should guide our economic policy. Had austerity been organized, like a drug trial, it would have been stopped, given evidence of its harms and the failure of its purported benefits to accrue. Following Iceland's lead, we could set up an office of health responsibility that would disclose publicly, monitor, and evaluate the health effects of budget cuts here in the UK. Second, we should help people return to work. Treat unemployment like the pandemic it is, a leading cause of suicide, anxiety, depression, alcoholism, heart attacks, to name a few. We've learned that smart investments and programs that help people get back into jobs quickly and where jobs are scarce go so far as to create them not only can save money on health care checks and unemployment bills, but can even help power faster economic recovery. And finally, invest in public health. Austerity in the public health sector is a false economy. The irony is that Greece and its epidemics of HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis are now costing far more than they would have been to prevent in the first place. Investing in public health is a wise choice in the good times. It's an urgent necessity in the worst of times. 
just as a bit of shameless self-advertising. I'll leave you there to leave time for questions. But the body economic is in much more detail now available. Thank you. Thank you, David. And for those interested, um, there, the book is, is sold just outside the theater, and uh, David will be happy to sign copies. But before that, uh, we will take uh, questions from the audience in groups of three. So if you can raise your hands. Yeah, we have one, two, and three. Hi, David. Those that are proponents of austerity, like the coalition government, have used reports like Reinhard Rogoff to justify it and say that we need to make cuts, otherwise we will face uh, you know, lack of growth and also bond yields will go up. Now, Reinhard Rogoff has since been discredited, but I haven't seen that, you know, in terms of its input parameters you know, by Thomas Herndon at MIT, I haven't seen that uh, Labour has seized upon that and tried to show the voodoo economics behind uh, the claim for austerity. Mm. Uh, we take uh, questions yeah. three. Yeah, there was another question here. The lady in red. Hi, and um, my question is just about the do no harm part of your strategy. So, I mean, I, I think that's very good in principle, but we're always going to be working within a budget, and so we have to make distributive decisions. When we make distributive decisions, some are going to be harmed. So, wouldn't a more appropriate maximum be to try and find a fairer distributive method rather than the more expansive do no harm maxim? Hi. Um, sorry, I had a question. Last year, when uh, Chancellor Osborne introduced his um, plan, um, spending uh, plan, every economist uh, they uh, they criticized him and they said that his plans will lead Britain to uh, into a wall and choke off. The, the growth as well. One year later, the, um, we can see that de deficit is reducing, unemployment is reducing as well, and uh, uh, the rec we can see the recovery of economy. And uh, the, for this year, the growth was 1.2 percent, and the, for the next year, forecast set um, a growth for 2.4 percent. So, don't you think the economists were wrong? Great. Well, a very good point about uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff. Uh, the economic foundations of austerity have been, in, in times of recession, have been completely shot out of the water. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware of this, uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff's study posited that when debt ex public debt exceeded 90% of GDP, uh, economic growth would begin to falter until a graduate student uh, at University of Massachusetts Amherst discovered a spreadsheet error uh, that had accidentally cut out some of the data, and once that data was reintroduced, that finding vanished. In subsequent work that's been done to look more carefully at those data, it's been found in disaggregating types of debt that's private debt rather than the public debt that carries bigger systemic risk to the economy. And that's an area that we, we've done very little uh, to deal with uh, in, in Europe and as societies. Uh, why aren't politicians taking it up? That's uh, a good question I hope you'll put to the Labour Party and the Conservatives and Lib Dems here in the UK, because there's acknowledgement even in the United States, where the Budget Office estimates that Osborne's austerity here has cut about 1.5% off GDP. 
That turns to uh, the next uh, question, uh, uh, the third question about recovery. Uh, we see green shoots, 1.2% growth. We have to take what we're seeing in comparative perspective. We're seeing a, a jobless recovery, unemployment still remaining high. We're seeing that the majority of the recovery is going to the top 1% of the population, where real wages for the remainder have been stagnant and are still below what they were six years ago. And as mentioned before, this has been the slowest recovery from a recession in, since we've been keeping records. And finally, just turning to the question about human costs, this should be at the heart of our debate. When our, our children ask us about the, great de- about the Great Recession, they're not going to ask us about how well we dealt with debts and deficits. They're going to ask us how well we took care of people who were falling through the cracks, people who had lost homes, people who lost jobs. And yes, indeed, there are difficult decisions to, to be made about where to invest um, but what we found is that investing in health, if done correctly, can return up to three pounds for each pound invested. Another thing we've learned is that the institutional mandates of those who govern our economies differ considerably. So in the United States, the Federal Reserve Board has full employment along with low inflation and its policy remit. If you look at the Euro- European Central Bank, it's only low inflation. And so... There is no institutional space for thinking about human costs. That's something we need to change. Three more questions. Hello. If if we take a measure like the so-called bedroom tax, which reduces uh, the spending power of people on benefits by, on average, about £20 per week and more in some cases. The, when we, we look at the, the impact assessment that the government has made and it published in July last year for the bedroom tax, and there was a box which says impact on health and well-being, and it said no, none, in other words. Um, what, what sort of, from a, a public health point of view, why is that possible and what can we do to ensure that something which reduces the income of people already on benefits and or forces them to move if they can find somewhere away from where they've lived for years maybe um, what, is the, what are the options for obliging the impact statement which is a statutory requirement in the UK to be more realistic <coughs> Uh, hello, my name is Robert, and I'm working in a community center in the east end of London. And um, uh, the stories of the people I meet there every day very clearly show the uh, destructive impact of budget cuts. Uh, but those people have no voice at all in the public debate. They're entirely powerless. Uh, and I was just wondering, it's not really your department, but uh, would you have any idea how maybe those stories could be made more available in the public debate to give them a voice, really. Would you like to take those two? Okay. Uh, let, let me turn first to the bedroom tax. I, I wouldn't want to give an impression that health impact assessments are a panacea, uh, and we, 
we've seen how, in some cases, tobacco companies, for example, have been able to influence impact assessments uh, to favor their desired uh, weakening of tobacco control. But a first step is to have an impact assessment because it provides at least some mechanism for holding politicians democratically accountable for the health effects of their policies. We requested an impact assessment of the Troika's austerity policies back in 2008, and we're still waiting. Uh, so I, I would encourage you to look into the details of who did the impact assessment and uh, raise some doubts about uh, their ability to win those contracts in the future. There's even anecdotal reports uh, of uh, bedroom tax suicides uh, of, I think, of one woman, Miss Stephanie Bottrell, uh, a grandmother who had lived in her house for 18 years. Uh, on the eve, she was set to be evicted. She had packed her bags and uh, instead threw herself in front of a lorry. And these are just a few of more than a thousand suicides we've seen over and above historical trends in the UK. So I I hope an investigation will be launched. Uh, Second, lack of voice. And this leads to the the important point that many of those who are suffering are are not, uh, were not in the room at Guildhall where David Cameron stepped at, at the Golden Throne like a modern day sheriff of Nottingham to say there will be permanent cuts to uh, standing ovation from members of the financial elite. Uh, The least that we can do as researchers is document those stories of suffering in the data. And when we work together uh, with people like yourself who are at the front lines, uh, our voices are, are stronger when the data on homelessness, on wages, on the health effects of those changes um, are entering into the public debate. So I'd encourage you to get, get in touch and uh, jo- join up with those who are working in public health and concerned, as you are, rightfully so, about these issues. David, thanks. This isn't, this isn't the first time in Europe whenever people have been faced with severe austerity and when they've lost faith in the democratic process. We're going to have the European elections shortly and if we can anticipate the neo-fascists and the other uh, fringe parties that are likely to be elected and where politicians turn the uh, hatred of the public against minorities. Do our politicians ever read the history books? There are are some striking parallels uh, with the history of World War II with what's happening in Greece today. Uh, For those of you following the media, there's been a rise of a neo-Nazi party, Golden Dawn, that's uh, been giving out food and health care to all persons with an identity card that can prove they're Greek citizens. And meanwhile, been conducting lynchings, violent purges, of immigrants, uh, homosexuals, and sex workers. Uh, They're now at 20% of the popular vote in Greece. Turning back the clock uh, to Germany, the Chancellor Brunig, the predecessor to Hitler, was called the Hunger Chancellor for making deep cuts to uh, German social support at a time of great hardship when Germany was being squeezed uh, for debt repayment and reparations from World War I. There's a real danger 
that continued deep cuts could give rise uh, to to fascism and radical parties. So I, I hope our politicians will listen. I'll squeeze my own question. So you praised uh, the American stimulus response um, during the crisis, but surely the American public health system is not the model that we would like to follow. So what, where should we go? Who should we emulate? Uh, well, certainly not emulate the U.S as is happening with the Health and Social Care Act, which has now moved, privatized 49% of the NHS, to where delivery is now being done by private contractors like, like Virgin uh, and other agencies. Uh, the NHS has stood out as a great protector of the British people during the recession, where in the U.S., an additional 5 million people lost access to health care because their healthcare access was tied to their jobs in the recession. In the UK, at least early on, we didn't see any sign that economic hardship was costing people their healthcare access. And that's because the NHS embraces a system where uh, ability to receive care is separated from ability to pay. We're, we're deeply concerned that uh, the UK is moving in the direction of the NHS, and we're already starting to see signs uh, of a hardship where... 35,000 public health workers have lost their jobs uh, in the NHS since the coalition assumed power. And one needs not be an economic ideologue to see that these kinds of retrenchments, uh, the cost of them can be calculated in terms of human lives. So we're, as researchers, we're likely to, and public health workers will be picking up the pieces. Um, uh, I was just wondering, um, you said obviously that spending and cuts don't fall equally. And I was wondering if you looked at research or what you know about research in terms of how the decline of public health falls and is distributed, like by age and gender, ethnicity, wealth, um, particularly age, I'm quite interested. Um, I just have a few questions. I want to know where you propose the money should come from to fund this. Um, and the second one is... Um, have you personally tried to influence the Treasury or, or given advice to the government? And um, the final one is you had a graph um, earlier on where it showed there was a, an increase in the percentage of, percentage of debt to GDP. It went up in 1980. I was just wondering what caused that. Take one more question. Uh, thanks for bringing up... Uh, one more question. Oh, one more question. Hello. Um, I was thinking that what you just told us about the devastating effects of austerity they, um, is clear and your arguments are clear. I'm interested that you're planning to speak to politicians about this. I, I can't imagine that the current government or the opposition or political parties are going to go, oh, yeah, you're right, we're going to change. It occurs to me that what could be really useful is that people in your position who do this kind of research could be really actively educating all of us, the public, to Icelandic levels of uh, um, sort of knowledge and preparedness towards activism. And 
And it's really, I wondered if you could answer as a really practical question as to what you can really be doing in your lovely position um, to make that happen. Yeah, all very good questions. As far as who is being harmed most by austerity, by in cuts and health in particular, by age, gender, ethnicity, uh, we, we, we lack vital information. When it comes to looking at the stock market, we have up to the millisecond information. But when it comes to public health, often our data are three years out of date, reflecting the priority that our leaders place on surveillance of the financial sector compared with, with those affecting our lives. Um, where Turning to the questions on where the money comes from, now is the time to invest. Interest rates are at historical lows. The European Central Bank just cut interest rates again. And the, the standard way governments uh, can raise money is by issuing bonds uh, and purchasing more. And what we've seen in the reset is that those countries, ironically, making deeper cuts by slowing their economy, economies by reducing purchasing power, spending in the economy and jobs, their debt levels have risen as a fraction of GDP because GDP has fallen, making debt less sustainable. So if your priority is on, on debt repayment, it, it now makes sense to invest. Um, and personally, given advice, I, I gave a talk at the Conservative Party conference. I've uh, consulted with the Labour Party uh, and one area that they are responsive to is information on on public attitudes. Uh, it's always an empirical question: Do do parties lead, drive, or follow public attitudes? We there's there's evidence of of both. Uh, but I would I would certainly uh, en- encourage you and others to go beyond publishing in academic journals. Uh, we are public intellectuals, but to, to publicize uh, your work and to ask questions uh, that are relevant to the biggest and most pressing debates in our society. Uh, and that leads to the third point on what can we do about it. We can't turn the UK, perhaps, into Iceland, but we can learn from their democratic option. When you look in the World Value Survey at political participation, Iceland is at the very top. And the data show in the last two weeks, uh, up to 60% uh, of people report that in, in the preceding year, they've written to their local member of parliament. Uh, if you looked at the 10% of the population in protest, the equivalent here would be 6 million people protesting as part of the anti-cut movement in the UK. We haven't had anywhere near that level of turnout for uh, the privatization of education, for the, the NHS Health and Social Care Act, much less uh, the permanent austerity plan that's being put forward today. So one way we can influence change is, is to vote. It, it does make a difference. You can see that under the Conservative Party in the 1980s, uh, inequality rocketed, where under the Labour Party it uh, stayed the same. Didn't go down, but stayed the same. Uh, but the second way and more effective way in democracies that people can make a difference is to organize. Uh, as Margaret Mead says, never doubt the ability of or- a small group of organized, committed citizens to make a difference. It's the only thing that ever has. And uh, I-, I really believe that. 
uh, uh, unions, uh, churches, trade groups, community centers uh, will have a stronger voice acting in concert than alone. And uh, I, I hope you'll get involved because many of these debates pit people against power. There's a real concern that those who have a vested interest in shrinking the role of the state and privatizing health care uh, and reducing tax payments into a welfare system they never use anyway, are seizing this crisis as an opportunity uh, to make ideological changes. Um, it, it's our responsibility, it's our challenge to act on the evidence. Good. Thank you, everyone, um, for coming, and thanks, David, in particular, for a great talk.